Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Henry David Thoreau once said, rather than love, then money, then fame, give me truth. So Upthinking Finance started as those of you who've been with us from the beginning back in April of last year, 2022. We're currently on our 39th episode. And over that time, the goal has been and continues to be to bring unique voices and ideas to the platform, typically having some connection to the impact of finances in our world, but often just sharing thoughts and ideas of people who don't think and express themselves in a way that you typically would find in most of the uh, larger media outlets. And so we're committed to that goal. I will tell you that I do get a lot of feedback, particularly from people here in the U.S. who appreciate the voices that are coming to us from Europe of late that are sharing that they are seeing and experiencing the same kinds of concerns and issues that we see over here in the U.S. And it serves to make the world a little smaller and also really, I think, reminds people just how interconnected we really are. I'm excited also to tell you that we will be having some exciting changes in the fourth quarter of this year to the podcast platform. So there's something to look forward to there. And I also just want to make sure people understand that this podcast isn't a profit center for our firm. It really is meant to be independent and a creative outlet so that we can bring on and have conversations with whoever we care to. To that end, today's guest is Christoph Plotha. He's a doctor of osteopathic medicine. He's completed two years of preclinical training at the medical faculty in Mayans, Germany, and then studied osteopathy at the University of Wales in Kent, England. He's worked for many years in Ireland, Spain, and the United States. He's currently working as a naturopath in Germany. He's the author and co-author of several books, authors of studies, national and international congresses, and a regular online speaker. His primary medical topics have been featured on television, radio, and films. He currently serves as a steering committee member of the World Council for Health, which is a global coalition of health-oriented organizations and civil society groups designed to inform about health and human rights. This is actually how I came in contact with Christoph. He was a speaker at the Better Way Conference in Bath, UK in June of this year. We've had a couple of speakers on, as most of you know, from that conference. And Christoph's main goal is to bring humans back into cooperation with their environment to create a sustainable recovery of us humans and our planet. So it's my pleasure today to welcome to Upthinking Finance, Christoph Plotha, who comes to us from just outside of Frankfurt, Germany. Christoph, welcome to Upthinking Finance. Well, thank you so much for the invitation, Emerson. It's a pleasure. Likewise. So I was thinking the first place to start, I mentioned in the intro that I had come across your work through the Better Way Conference, and you had made a comment about generations of people being raised under kind of a weight of fear. And I was wondering if maybe you could elaborate on what that is and maybe what the consequences and ramifications have been as time has gone on. I mean, fear basically, as we know, uh, deactivates part of our frontal lobes, which in terms make us not being able to think. So it's an ideal way to control somebody, putting them into fear. This has been known for hundreds of years. Clausewitz was one of the first ones advising the military in order to get a war going for the individual countries to first create a fear of an enemy from outside. So none of the wars that you can think of yeah, for hundreds of years or maybe forever ever started without the element of fear. So if you want to control somebody and if you want to get him active, because fear basically activates very, very deep instincts in us, the first thing you do, you 
give them a reason to be afraid of. Yeah. So the ruling class has been amazingly innovative in order to do this. And we can look at the last world wars, what has been done, what arguments have been used. We can look at all kinds of subjects that are on a daily basis in our newspapers. There is this tendency for people to be attracted to fear as well. I mean, a friend of mine, he once in Nevada founded a radio station with just positive news. Nobody was interested in it. They went bankrupt after three months. Yeah. So we are being drawn into negativity and especially into fear. And I personally think because we have it ingrained for centuries in us. So it's not only a deep, deep instinct in us that basically shuts down our clear thinking and gets us back to our survival instincts. We got so used to it. And there's something called epigenetics that actually modifies our genes depending on the environmental influences. I think we've been a little bit primed to react to fear. And this goes into our education system, especially in the last few years. It has been described in many, many books of how to create a mass hysteria and to create a mass manipulation. And we have wonderful speakers on this topic in the last few years. These techniques are known. These techniques are written down. So if you want to comply, to have people to comply with whatever agenda you have, first set them into fear. So my alarm clocks, they are always activated when I hear fear, because if there's a real challenge, if you and I have a problem, am I going to make you afraid or do I encourage you so we can both get out of this crisis together? That's the one question I always ask myself. That was have been really a crisis. They would have done anything in order to make us participate, get us strong, yeah, get us empowered in order to find solutions together. But as soon as fear is implemented on us, there's something very, very wrong. Well, that's interesting. The first thing that popped into my head was 9-11, because I know that was a defining moment for a lot of people. And I'll tell you straight up, I was the one, you know, yeah, Patriot Act. That's right. I don't care. I've got nothing to hide. We were all on board. I mean, it was not even a question. And now you start looking at the ramifications of that effectively invasion of everybody's privacy that we all signed on to out of fear. You're right. So let me ask you this. I guess this is maybe an obvious question, but if you were to just look at, say, the last 10 years and maybe throw in from your view, particularly in Europe, I have questions. I'm curious about your thoughts on the EU, because to me, I wonder what the elements of that are. I had a conversation with a gentleman in Ireland a couple of weeks ago about this, but what are some examples in, let's say, the last 10 years that maybe have gotten us to this point that for you are kind of mile markers related to that? Is there anything that really stands out? Well, there are quite a few, actually, Emerson, but I have to admit, we were talking previously about where we stood before uh, this time, and I've been an activist for decades, uh, fighting for environmental issues, for health, to get rid of toxin, EMF, our environment. I've been to local politicians, national, European nationals, spoke in front of the European Parliament parliament, several parliaments here in Europe. And I was really, really frustrated. That's another thing. If one thing is in the political agenda, it's not basically driven by individuals there. It's driven by the industry. And we were always told that this was a conspiracy. So, yeah, we were made to believe this was all for the greater good. How many times have we heard this? But in fact, there are a few people that are profiting from everything that's happening. And which is what is really, really the climax of the last few years is that we all were made feel guilty if we didn't comply 
because we could hurt grandma, granddad with our decisions, or we were on social and the label of being, when opposing the agenda, a right-wing Nazi conspiracy theorist with an alumni head, that is an international thing that they drafted in order to suppress opposition. And I have been very, very idealistic when the EU started that I thought, well, if now people come together and they unite, like the United Nations once was, yeah, I mean, why not taking the fate of our planet into a supernatural organization that really takes care of all of us? I found that thought actually beautiful. I do believe that there were some people that were really convinced that this was for the greater good. But all these big organizations, I already realized 10 years ago, were not what I thought they would be. And they were basically profit-driven. You can see the WHO, you can see the UN, you can see about the, the sponsoring of organizations like a health organization that's responsible for the health of our planet being 80% sponsored by multinational companies. Uh, so certainly not an organization that I would put my trust into in order to take care of the health of our planet, of us humans, and as they now say, of the entire environment. And as you know, next May, if they sign their contract, it's basically going to be a dictatorship by Mr. Tedros himself, the head of the World Health Organization, because he himself alone can decide what is an international health concern and what is not. He can impose mandatory or even forced vaccinations now. He can do almost anything when they sign this treaty next May. And this insight that basically all these big organizations had been undermined by uh, corporate power, that was something very, very disillusioning. So I could give you many, many insights into that of the last few years. But I think the main point is, yeah, with the EU, the same. We thought, well, let's put all European states together and create something in order. I mean, think about our past here in Europe. I mean, one country fought against the other one, and then the other one started a war against the next one. Yet that basically stopped since World War II. So it's quite a recent thing beforehand. That was just, Europe was a constant battlefield. So in the terms of the hope for peace, I found that a very, very beautiful thought. But in fact, good Lord, I mean, we basically profited to say a few, a handful of people here in Europe that are controlling the saga are profiting from it, but we are exploiting the world like we did in imperialism. Yeah, if you look at every mobile phone, children in Africa are digging minerals in <laughs> and metals in order to get that from us. We are still in the dark ages. If we now say, well, yeah, we're living a better life here, which is changing rapidly, by the way, we're still doing that at the expense of nature and other people all over the world. I know this sounds so simplistic, but <laughs> there seems to be truth in things, right, that complicated. And it's it's follow the money. There's always defining moments in life. Have you ever heard of uh, the fictitious character Roy McAvoy? There's a no. movie called Tin Cup. Okay. Uh -huh. Well, the short of it is, he says, you know, in life, there's defining moments. And when a defining moment comes, you define the moment or the moment defines you. <laughs> and this has I been like it. That. It's been a series of these defining moments and money seems to be the ruler of the day. It's just, it's the world. And so 
You're right. The idea, you know, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't the World Health Organization, I mean, aren't they supposed to be advisory, not policymaking? That's right. That's right. And now, if you imagine with the amendments of the IHRs, that's not the treaty itself yet. They actually can now just imagine that most countries in the world have already signed an agreement to this, that they actually put their sovereignty into the hands of an international health organization, which can make the rollout of their measures compulsory for every country. And even the United States and Germany have signed this, even making it possible to fine our countries in the case that we don't comply. So we put absolutely everything into the hands of this organization And I would never believe, but looking at the history of the last few decades in the way a big pharma has developed and basically has become a global player, that we are living under a dictatorship mask as medicine. So here's a question that comes up whenever I have these kind of conversations. And I think I might have an answer because the question to me is, is once you start to see this and really look at it without any kind of a bias, just more of just from an observation standpoint, removed out of it. It's hard to not see. There's only a point where there's so many coincidences. And yet there's resistance from time to time with people I talk to, to this idea that this is intentional, that there's a literally an intentional. And I kind of thought, and I know I even mentioned it before we started, maybe it's just people not wanting to hang on to what they believe. You know, there's two kinds of people, those who seek truth and those who seek to be reassured that what they believe is true. But then I thought maybe there's just an element of most people don't conceive of organizations and corporations. It just doesn't enter their mind that they would be out to get them, that there's maybe some sort of innocent naiveness and an inherent belief in good. Does that make sense? I mean, I just sometimes wonder. First of all, I like simplicity, as you just mentioned in your previous remark, yeah, because mostly the truth is very, very simple. And it has nothing to do with conspiracy. As I said, I've been involved in activism on many topics. Let's take glyphosate. Yeah, We know through the work of Professor Senef and others how toxic it actually is to our environment. Yeah, there's absolutely no doubt that it's basically polluting all insects, microbes, mammals, humans, and has been doing this for quite a while. 72% of all of us, if you measure it in our urine, are full of this stuff. It takes a while to glycine, it involves the Shikamatke pathway, it creates cancer, it does all kinds of things. This knowledge has been out there for almost decades now. So if you think that any regulatory body would have looked at the evidence of thousands of studies and would have said, all right, okay, well, enough is enough. We made a mistake. Now we have to turn around. All people that I have been in contact with all over the world did excellent research on that topic. Take uh, Professor Seralini in Italy, who has done the most amazing studies on the consequences of genetic modified food and the green revolution, because it's all one concept, yeah, that you have these genetically modified plants, you have the toxins that you spray, and then you have these roundup resistant crops and they survive, anything else dies. So this is something we've done to almost every country on this planet. And it's about 80% of farmland nowadays worldwide that will be basically poisoned with enormous consequences. I mean, 90% of insects are gone. Bees are a huge problem. So we know it's not a good thing. So you would think, well, somebody must take all that science into their hands and make conclusions. But in fact, now it's now being discussed to be renewed for another 10 years here in Europe. So how can that happen? Because 
the industry has the same method because I've been following it, the smoking issue with the sugar industry, yeah, with all these chemicals that are put in our foods and everything. It's always the same. Yeah. So uh, first of all, you just introduce something with very fake studies because there's even Lancet admits nowadays 60 percent of studies in the most respected medical journal are basically fraud. There are other people that actually say that it's almost 90 percent that's fraud. I do believe it's a huge percentage anyway. So first of all, you swamp the entire science sector and the media with positive studies on something you want to introduce in our environment, in our food chain, in whatever. And this next one is not only censor all the other voices, you basically discredit them. And you fire them from their positions and you dig out dirt out of their private lives or whatever. And so they're completely silenced. They lose their jobs. They close down their department at university. Their papers are retracted. It has been going on for so many, so many topics. So this is nothing that sounds like a conspiracy if you look behind the scenes. And the media basically is bought by the same industry. If you look at the amount of ads that you have on all these topics, all those chemicals and all those drugs that are on the market now. It's always the same concept. Yeah, You basically discredit everything that poses the saga. And I was in Italy in front of the Senate with 30 people in beginning of 21. As a personal example, how you can be part of the system, you recognize that something is not right here. We presented existing COVID treatment protocols that had been effective in 2020. They were all wonderful doctors that just jumped on conclusions from old drugs, diet, micronutrients, and everything that was available because there was a new health crisis. So there were people like Peter McCullough that in August 2020 published a peer-reviewed papers on the efficiency of these protocols with almost 95% efficiency. So the problem was, if you have a treatment approach, you can't give an emergency approval to a vaccine. So guess what happened? First of all, we were supposed to go live on Rai, that's the national Italian TV station that got canceled. It was in front of the Italian Senate. There was a documentary of Greta Thunberg that they showed instead. Then we were viewed by about 100 million people worldwide. And then YouTube shut us down. So nobody could see it. So that was it. So there were these protocols that were highly motivated people that were wonderful doctors that were out there in order to help their people. And on the other hand, there was this World Health Organization or regulatory bodies that told us, don't treat a patient, wait, send them back home. First time in history that a doctor was told not to treat anybody. I mean, that's the first thing you do. The Hippocratic Oath just gives you the obligation to take care of a patient. No, you don't treat them. You send them back home. You wait until it's really, really bad. You send them to a hospital and in hospital, they give you drugs that don't work and actually even take measures that even kill patients. This was very odd, Emerson. And I said, well, this is surpassing anything that I've witnessed before. And I saw wonderful people being shut down in their labs, taking their licenses away, even 10 years ago with certain subjects. There are certain no-go topics. My wife always said, why are you involved in all those topics that don't make any money, take a lot of energy, and do nothing at all. <laughs> so, so very, very true. Yes. <laughs> so, well, okay. And I wasn't planning on going here, but since we're having this conversation, I know here there was a time when the FDA was putting out these tweets about ivermectin. Come on, y'all. It's for horses and stuff. And now the whole thing is flipped and it's like, oh yeah, ivermectin. But 
So here's the question. I mean, is it simply just the almighty buck? I mean, it, it, to me, all this stuff you're discussing, is money enough for people to compromise their integrity to that extent? I mean, I just, it seems like there's got to be a higher thing because if that's all it is, you know what I'm saying? It just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, at some point, when is enough enough? You know what I mean? That's my question. I wished I had the complete answer, Animism. But if you just look at somebody, you mentioned at the beginning of the World Economic Forum. If you mentioned World Economic Forum being a part of anything that goes on, I could go on in very detail how that was actually the case. But if you said that in 2020, you were called a conspiracy theorist. Then a guy that founded the WFS, Professor Schwab, wrote a book, The Great Reset, in which he described absolutely everything because he used even the COVID crisis as a potential for a reset. Anything that happened, all the measures that were never done to humanity, the masking, isolation, from what we know, it didn't work at all. We knew that right from the beginning, by the way. Yeah, it was known, if you think of Barrington Declaration and other things, it was known right from the beginning that that was not true and that it could never solve the problem. They were irrational. If you were really into the epidemiology or in virology, immunology, these were measures that don't work. For some reason, though, they spread this out. And if you know, there's no single topic that's isolated now anymore. I mean, you're in the economic world. You know about the state of our economy in 2020. It wasn't good the way we're going. Something needed to happen. Yeah. So, well, biotech is a huge market. Yeah. Because if pharma is in a big crisis, they can't invent any new medication. In fact, not even 10% of the patents a year actually get into final stages of getting into the market. Antibiotics are not produced anymore, even if they should be the number one challenge because of all this antibiotic resistance that we have on our planet. Nobody goes in there. It's not profitable anymore. So all these repurposed drugs, unfortunately, still work. And some of them actually still work better than the old ones. You have to know if you go into the industry, you see that new medications they bring on the market, they never compare them with the old ones. Yeah. And if you look into blood pressure, a medication, for example, the ACA2 inhibitors, you have uh, the beta antagonist, whatever, you have all kinds of medications that are now state of the art. But actually the good old diuretic that was there before and that made you pee and therefore lower your blood pressure they actually work better than the other ones. Yeah, So you can see the system, they always need new markets, but coming to the point where, is it all about bucks? Well, it isn't. There are certainly other agendas here. And you and I know that it was not a health crisis. It wasn't. I mean, right from the beginning, and Anidis already pointed it out, almost every year, the incidence, that your chances to die of COVID, you had to be on average over 82 and it wasn't much worse than the flu. So what did they do? Why all of a sudden create this fear, use the fear in order to make all of us curse in this agenda? Because it's not going to be the last one. I mean, they're threatening all the time. Tedros is already talking about the new pathogens out there that we have to be prepared even better for all the other pandemics. And if you talk about to a good epidemiologist, you can see there are effective measures that have nothing to do with the measures that were taken. And if you then see all the measures that are now to save the climate imposed on us, and people are again made feel really, really, really fearful. Yeah. I mean, don't want you, I want you to panic. Yeah. One of those statements that's often said not only by Greta Thunberg, but others as well. They want us to get into panic. I mean, they've known 
we should be more responsible with our planet. We had five big extinctions in the history of our planet. We are certainly hitting into the sixth one, but we had an extinction almost every 27 million years ago. Yeah, it wiped out because of various reasons that happened to our planet, about 80 to 90% of all life forms on this planet. Yeah, so yeah, it's a part of it. But to tell us at the moment that we are the reason for this next mass extinction is not right because basically what we're doing, we have to deal with the things that we're given by a few people that make a lot of money and they need a new structure. They want a universal, they want an international body to control basically every element of life. And I don't think that's a conspiracy. Yeah. It's about control. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of, again, on the theme of just simple observations. I mean, the more centralized everything gets, the more easier it is to just control whatever the situation is. I mean, that's just kind of obvious to anybody. Less choice. Yeah. So here's one you brought up, too. This is sort of shifting to another lane. But I know these 15-minute cities, I know people are familiar but maybe elaborate a little bit on what that is for people who don't necessarily know and kind of how all that fits into this. I think that would be helpful. I mean, it's a project that's being carried out in many, many European countries. England was one of the first ones. Yeah, it started in Oxford to basically make people, to imprison people in 15-minute distance to everything they need. So... They say this is for the greater good, this is for the climate, but it would actually mean that, yeah, they want to create a model in which we are free to move within 15 minutes from where we live to get our food, to go to the doctor, to visit a friend. But now if you have a doctor that lives a little bit more outside or your dentist is maybe half an hour away or your best friend is living half an hour away, you're already starting to get into trouble. And this is being sold as an effective mean of our carbon footprint. And as I said, the COVID saga basically was a first attempt to try this with people. I mean, I don't know if you're aware, but in, in France, they already did this in a way they had all the mobile phones because you were not allowed to leave your home more than five minutes. So they traced your mobile phone. And if you were further than five minutes, you got fined straight away. Yeah. So this was done in France already during the lockdowns and people got fined even in the countryside. Yeah. Walking outside because they were traced with their mobile phone. So the 15 minutes is just the next stage of it. And as we said, it's about control. I mean, I've been in Africa a lot in the last year. Even on the smallest airport over there, you now have face scanners. Everything is being done with digital ID, introduction methods. The fingerprint was one thing, but facial recognition to me is another level. You can go to health clubs everywhere now with facial recognition or even recognition of your pulse in a health center. Everything is being scanned, but everything is being collected as well. So people are not aware of the fact that we've seen this in the opposition movement, Emerson, that people say, oh, well, it makes everything a lot more practical. If everything is digitalized, I can leave my card at home and yeah, I don't have to worry about anything. And I'm going to be a citizen. I have nothing to fear. Well, if you look at the Canadian truckers, you have something to fear because even people that supported this peaceful protest, to me, one of the most beautiful movement that we've seen in the last few years, even people that gave people food, they're a Accounts were basically shut down. We had the same thing here in Germany. If doctors opposed and still are 
We have dozens of doctors that had their accounts closed straight away. They had the visit of the police. As soon as they questioned the saga, we have uh, lots of doctors here in prison at the moment, uh, two years in prison because they refused the saga. This is a completely different ballgame. People are not aware. And then even here in Germany, people don't know what's happening to all these doctors and what actually happened to Canadian truckers because they never heard it here in the news. So if people are doing something wrong, if you look at the Chinese social credit system and know that everything that you're doing is tracked and everything is collected and it will decide whether you can travel, whether you can send your children to college, whether you can choose the right kindergarten for your babies, anything can then be determined by the way you are a good citizen for the system. So it's a huge danger. We're trying to warn of this and please be aware that read up anything you can about the position of the World Health Organization, the UN and the World Economic Forum at the moment, trying to basically enslave humanity at the moment. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because that information, it's not like anybody's hiding it. And you know, I mean, it's right there. These videos are out and I've brought it up and people sometimes just dismiss it as extremists yet. Then you start looking at all. I mean, that was the thing that woke me up. And I've shared this on this podcast before with other guests. But when I started, I looked and I thought, why would financial organizations, big ones, and a lot of them globally, they're supposed to be building wealth for my clients, be connected to an organization that wants you to own nothing by 2030 and be happy. I mean, it, it just, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> doesn't, and I asked one lady that worked for me, oh, well, it's just a marketing thing. No, that's a statement. And you know what's interesting about these 15-minute cities is there's one industry, I'm sure there may be more, but there's one industry that is not shown anywhere as a partner, not one company as a partner to WEF, and it's the airline industry. <laughs> because they want to kill, I mean, it's just to your point. They don't want people getting on planes and living their life, going here and going there. It's all meant to just to kind of lock everybody in. That's no conspiracy. You can go on the website yeah, right there. of the EU Parliament and you can see that basically by 2030, it's not only the ban of any other car than electric car, but also that you get one flight in every three years. And when I was recently in France, even the little local newspapers, they made little articles that most French people would be very, very happy to have three flights per lifetime in order to save the planet. So this is all smoothly yeah, integrated in the thought patterns of the public. I mean, we've had technologies to fly airplanes with a lot less fuel. We even have hydrogen powered airplanes that are already in the air at the moment. Hydrogen wouldn't leave any carbon footprint on this planet. It's the technologies are all there. And if you understand that, that the technology is actually there, you have to ask yourself, what is really going on? Doesn't, doesn't make sense. I was just going to kind of lead to how this personally for you has led you to do the kind of work you do as a naturopath. You gave really a, an awesome presentation at the conference that just talked about the frequencies, because that's something I've become aware of recently in the last year, mainly through my wife, because she does a lot more research on this stuff than I do. Just how the technology and is really getting, I think, our bodies out of balance as well as then disconnected from nature. So in the time we have, I'd be kind of curious to see maybe if you can explain how your work sort of fits into all this that we've talked about. Is that, like you said, you're certainly not becoming a millionaire doing this work. So there's got to be another motivation here, right? <laughs> Just ask my wife. Yeah, that's so, right. <laughs> so as I mentioned, I've been an activist in many, many areas, and I could see that things started to go in the wrong direction if 
humans put themselves above nature. If we introduced um, genetically modified organisms, if you introduced uh, toxins in our environment, heavy metals or uh, chemicals or anything, or if you introduce frequencies that are million, million times stronger than any communication signal within our bodies, the cells of our body, I mean, there's been recent research into our microbiome, one of the most important aspects of our health, all these gut bacteria that rule basically every body system that we have, they communicate in frequencies of 4G and 3G, so our old mobile phone methods. And I'm just writing a paper on depression, and probably the major factor in depression is has nothing to do with the brain. It has to do with our gut, yeah? And then if you know that if you put a mobile phone on your belly, most people nowadays, they use it, they text or they look in the internet, so they don't actually call that much. And you expose it to your abdomen, you will have several effects on it. I mean, you, a rat, if you want to use it in diabetes research, all you do is you put the same frequency than Wi-Fi 2.4 gigahertz, expose the rat for 24 hours and the pancreas is gone. The rat is diabetic. So we have a lot of people with pancreatic problems nowadays. Now, if you use the mobile phone in front of your belly, you actually inhibit certain bacteria that are responsible for the release of good neurotransmitters to your brain and you can turn rats depressive. So if we're talking about a mental crisis, we have enough reasons nowadays to talk about mental and emotional crisis in our times and uh, no doubt, and we could go on for ages, what it means to have a good mental and emotional state nowadays. But we completely underestimate that if we start to be in disconnect with nature, and I think every technology, I, I know you're probably familiar with Bhutan, yeah, and was once looking out because they founded a happiness, a ministry of happiness, because they wanted to know what actually makes people happy, not wealthy or not good citizens, what makes people healthy. And they looked into this and they decided that when they had their researchers going to every country in the world and to study systems, capitalism, communism, whatever, they found basically still being connected to nature was one of the main things. So the first thing they did, they put about 70% of the Bhutan out as a national reserve, yeah, a nature that you can't touch. And every industry that comes into the country has to show that their products and their way of producing something is not harming industry, uh, not harming the environment. Because as soon as you have an unsustainable method, you will destroy nature. And the consequence of that, we are all together, we will destroy ourselves. If we now kill our, all our insects, and EMF has a huge effect on it. In fact, we just wrote together with Arthur Fürstenberg and Professor Olli Johansson, we wrote a, a press release about the influence of EMF. I've been involved in it for many, many years. We've done research on it, and I recognized very, very early the damage it creates. And we have now over 40,000 studies on this topic, the damage it creates in our systems. If you think about the introduction about all these environmental hazards, EMF certainly has uh, probably the strongest effect on us nowadays. We talk maybe about BPA or yeah, other chemicals that we find in our food and yeah, being able to influence us. I mean, now, you know, the FDA even labeled um, many of the artificial sweeteners as cancerous. Yeah, one of them is being used in almost every diet soft drink in the United States. It's the aspartame. We've known this for 20 years yeah, and we've tried everything to do that. Now it's there. It's still in all these bottles nothing is changing. <laughs> so is it really David against Goliath in fighting it? But EMF is not only increasing 
all the time around us. I mean, if you look at the fact that it's all energy, every wireless device, whether it's a Wi-Fi router or a mobile phone, has a certain radiation. And that's measured in energy, in microwatts. So if you then have five, I used to give presentation in schools or for our health ministers or whatever, all which I don't do anymore because it has now been part of the agenda to increase wireless communications everywhere. But if you look at the data that we have on all the mechanisms, on non-thermal mechanisms that actually harm our body, what a wonderful job they've done to call us the alumni hat and the conspiracy theory but you influence calcium channels and uh, calcium ion channels. And if you look even out at nature, you can see how birch trees or pine trees are the ones that suffer the most. I mean, here in Germany, you can hardly find any sane birch tree anymore. They start to grow in very strange shapes and then they die. And all the other trees, if you want to see whether a tree is EMF damage, just look at it. When it looks doesn't look very, very healthy, it will die off from the top. You will see that the top parts are dying and it will slowly go downwards. So we know all the effects on life forms and the energy is far, far too much. And then, if I may stick with this topic for a moment, and if you then think about the amount of energy that's being released by 5G, it's about 180 times more than we have at the moment. Yeah, 185. So basically, if you have a few mobile phones with a 5G connection, you are far above any any of those limits that are completely ridiculous because non-thermal effects are even in the lowest doses. And people get used to everything. I mean, as humans, we're very, very adaptive. We can live in the Sahara, we can live in the Antarctica. And once you're there, yeah, you don't realize how cold or how warm it is anymore. Like that experiment with a frog, yeah, in the rising temperature. <laughs> yeah, we're not aware of it. But I told you, I live in the middle of the woods. I don't have a mobile phone and I use everything just via cable connection because I've been in contact with all these research in the last few decades. And it really frightened me to know what we know. And if people come to us, the first thing that usually happens is they fall asleep because they are all the time being bombarded with these frequencies and yeah, their adrenals get charged up and all of a sudden it's not there and we're yeah, the first few times when we invited guests and they fell asleep on the sofa after the meal, it was a little bit embarrassing for our communication culture. But afterwards, we realized that it's that. Long story short, to my personal path, I looked into everything. I contacted people all over the world. I jumped on the next plane. I flew to these people in order to learn from them. And never a door was shut in front of me. Then my children came, so I couldn't do that anymore. But I learned from the people who I trusted. Yeah. And we were talking at the beginning about trust because I don't trust something because of a study. I don't trust it because of the title behind a person. And unfortunately, nowadays, if I look who's in this position of the regulatory bodies, because that's to me is one of the greatest shocks that nothing with all we know from all these environmental toxins and from the current saga with an mRNA technology, that nothing is coming to stop it. Yeah. So it shows us clearly what we're up against. And I had to test it on my own. I had to test it on my body and I looked for solutions. And as you know, World Council for Health is seeking ways to empower people for a better way. And yet nature gives us all the solutions. And if we get nature back into our approach with all the crisis that we're facing, I mean, I just gave a lecture that I already gave in 21 
about COVID, for example, because now COVID is again a subject in the media. Just look at two studies. There was one study that said that in a mathematical model, they looked at millions of people and none with a vitamin D level above 50 nanograms per milliliter that died under COVID. So did not, independent of age, risk factor, whatever. So just look at that, vitamin D. If anybody out there would have been really interested in our well-being, he would have advised us to get vitamin D because we've known this, not that dramatically, but we've known the effect of vitamin D on our immune system right at the beginning. So I ask people, just get out, measure your vitamin D, don't just take it, measure it, that it's above 50 nanograms, between 50 and 80 nanograms per milliliter. And the other one is sugar. Nobody has talked in the last few years about sugar, but in fact, sugar is, I'm talking about crystalline sugar, yeah, that usually you have in all these products in your daily life. Sugar can actually deplete your body of about 80% of vitamin C. So if you take a tablespoon and daily consumption is about 27 sugar cubes in Germany, it's higher in the States yeah, per day. Look at your vitamin C and we know vitamin C is very, very important for your immune system. But in fact, actually four pathways are involved in enhancing the effect of COVID-19. And there was a study done in Switzerland in which they used a mathematical model again. And if you cut out carbohydrates and sugar, when you have an infection, the fatality rate was zero. Now look at these two things. Just get out sugar and carbohydrates, fill up with vitamin D, your risk of dying is almost zero. And I always love the simple techniques, but basically what this is all about, just get back into resonance what nature offered you. And I could go on when sugar was introduced and basically the who is who of our chronic diseases is associated with sugar. I mean, in 1930, we had the first heart attack that we described. Nowadays, people are dropping like flies everywhere with heart attacks. And you know, they say it's about genetics. I just had a headline over a German paper here. It's about genetics. Well, no, we're having a serious problem here and we're having a serious problem with diabetes. I mean, it's one in three children in the States now that will get diabetic in its lifetime. I mean, these numbers are incredible. And there again, if you then see about the people that are profiting from the drug sales from that, my favorite story, otherwise I'll rant on forever, I'll just give you one more story. My favorite story was the American Pediatric Association that recognized for the first time at the beginning of this year, there was an obesity crisis in the United States. Yeah. All right. Okay. We might have, we, you <laughs> wow. and I might have seen that maybe last year, 10 years, 20 years ago, but so they finally recognized it. But you know, Emerson, what was on their website in order to tackle the problem? It was getting out new drugs and bariatric surgery. There was no talk of diet or exercise. And this sums up the entire story for me. This health care system and I just had a talk with somebody who is financing private health clinics in several countries of the world that start with $45,000 a week and go up to $150,000 a week without any treatment being done just to be present with the right health care. The health that for the elite is available includes diet, includes yeah all the things that we talked in the conference about. But for us, it's a disease management game. They don't want us to get healthy. This system is not set up. And if you look at the books, I just just give people the book of Neil Barnard, How to Step Out of Diabetes. In two weeks, you can chuck away your insulin if you have diabetes type 2, if you change your diet. This is no problem at all. Yeah. Nobody's telling you this. Why not? 
And so we live in a disease management and where vaccines have been the number one lucrative thing because you don't have to wait for people to get ill. You just give it to everybody. So that's a money-making machine. Yeah. That's the greatest thing you can do. Yeah. That's a previous, that's a conversation I've had. Yeah. The need to have a market and create a market for this ongoing subscription plan, I guess you could call it. Christoph, I have to tell you, well, first of all, my son is going to be really disappointed to hear about your comments on the, <laughs> yes. the ill effects of sugar, but now he won't be hearing it just from me. You know how incredible <laughs> it is coming from somebody else besides a parent. And I wanted to mention, too, there's this document that was put out by the World Council of Health called The Effects of Unregulated Digitalization on Health and Democracy. And it's actually a really good write-up. It's just with facts and information about where these things lead and the loss of personal sovereignty. And so we'll put a link up to that when we publish this. But I just I want to thank you for your time, Christoph. It's great to talk to you. You know, I always appreciate bringing on experts dedicated their life to what I perceive as a higher calling. I know we offline were talking about the spiritual components of this, and I think, and this has come up in a few conversations too, but at the end of the day, the freedom of all this is that you start to rely on, you see, my wife was talking about this this morning, we were out walking our Huskies, and she was talking about how life experiences, life is starting to converge to where all these things we experience in our life are getting to this point now as you get older, where they start to align in a sense in your belief system, and it all starts to connect. And I guess my point is, is that you really start to realize that we all have this internal wisdom, this discernment. Like you mentioned, you got to get to a place where you can hear it and be alone with it and process it. And that's a big challenge now with all the distractions and just the noise, electronic problems, everything. But there is a freedom in all of it. I just, I come away with these conversations with people like yourself, always just feeling really hopeful because there is a truth in this simplicity that you bring. And anyway, I just want to thank you. Any final thoughts you might want to share? Well, first of all, thank you for all you're doing there. Yeah, for spreading the word. That's very courageous. And I think humanity can be grateful for any individual who does it like you do. So that's wonderful. Thank you for your work. And second, maybe you come from the business sector. I come from medicine. And is there anything that we know of where we can say, this is the reason and this is the consequence. So is there this linear connection between A and B? No, you know, there are millions of factors that can influence anything. And you know, that's life. So if anybody out there comes and say, this is the only solution, my red flag yeah, is being activated. Yeah, it's because it's simply not true. And you mentioned simplicity. The simple solutions are mostly the right ones. And they're very, very simple things. And, you know, we stand for a decentralized life in which we take basically care of our basic needs because that all the things that are shaping our daily life are being taken away from us. Our food is being produced center in a centralized way. We're bombarded with chemicals. We're bombarded with frequencies. You know, in medicine, we talk about consent. Yeah, I need to consent to something. Nobody asked us if we wanted all of this in our lives. And I think we should have written consent, whether I want this in my food, I want this yeah, in my environment as a frequency, if I want this in my water, we should go back to very, very basic things. And one thing that we were discussing at the beginning that you and I, we just connected. Yeah, we don't have to explain it. Yeah, there is a certain wavelength. And because we often discussed about this, people that we like to communicate at the moment are people that know how to be humble. It has been one of the trades, yeah, that humbleness makes you listen. 
Humbleness makes you aware that there are other solutions. And whether it's science, whether it's economics or politics, there's always different opinions and solutions. And you have to come to an agreement, but you cannot enforce any opinion that should be the right solution for the entire world. This never made sense. It will never make sense. So yeah, let's all come back to humbleness and see that we can only exist as a part of this beautiful planet with all the beautiful creatures and there's nothing superior and we are certainly not superior to any little creature on this planet. And here's to humbleness and another universal law, that's love. If we're connected with love to our environment, to our fellow human beings, to our family, what can happen to us? This is the thing that makes us happy. This is the thing that makes us healthy. So here's to humbleness and love. And thank you very much for your time. Amen. Keep Thanks for joining me, Christoph. Yeah. Thank you for joining me on Upthinking Finance. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.